Stories on This Week in FCPA, the Labor Day edition, include Is ESG on Your Radar? Vince Walden in Fraud Magazine, The Intersection of Business and Compliance, Mike Volkoff in Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Is China Set the World Standard for Data Privacy? Aaron Nicodemus in Compliance Week. Is COVID-19 the biggest challenge to compliance ever? Calvin Gordon in CCI. UK signals a different approach on data transfer from the EU. Aaron Nicodemus in Compliance Week. Three compliance officers get SEC Whistleblower Award. Matt Kelly in Radical Compliance. Email break-in sanctionable. Dylan Tokar reports in the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. ISO 37002 and the EU Whistleblower Standard. Kelly Maxwell in Conversant by OneTrust blog. The continued trial of the century in Mozambique. Rick Messick reports in Global Anti-Corruption blog. Diversity training that fosters acceptance and collaboration. The Compliance Line blog. These stories, events, podcasts, and all the news on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, back from a two-week hiatus, sojourn, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 267 for the week ending. September 3rd, 2021, the Labor Day edition. So Jay has returned from an extended road trip, and we're back to look at some of the um, stories that caught our eye over the past week and uh, talk about the upcoming Labor Day. So Jay, what say you? I say let's get to the news. What's up for number one? So Jay, is ESG on your radar? Yes, it is. Well, that's good, because Vince Walden says you need to have it on your radar. Vince writes a column in Fraud Magazine, and if you uh, this, uh, that alone is worthwhile to become a member of the ACFE, but uh, comes out with a monthly column, or, or bi-monthly in the magazine and online, and he talks about uh, some, some of the basics, but he talks about it from the fraud pers- examiner perspective. And that's really not something we've seen, Jay. We've had multiple ESG articles on this uh, podcast, but typically they, they take a look at it from uh, the compliance angle, corporate governance, or perhaps something else. And uh, he really talks about, uh, beginning talks about the three elements of ESG, social responsibility, environmental responsibility, and of course, governance, and how fraud examiners need to be aware uh, that the ESG label uh, is being used in a way that might lead to fraud. Uh, we've had uh, SEC enforcement actions and, invest- and indeed even investigations where uh, companies who fraudulently claim they had an ESG program or gave fraudulent measurements uh, got caught. So we don't even, uh, we've yet really to see about uh, see about it from the fraud examiner perspective. So. Uh, sh- uh, shout out to Vince. Kudos uh, for the article and uh, check him out in Fraud Magazine. Jay? Uh, next up, we have an article from our good friend Mike Volkov from his always interesting Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. 
And um, Mike is going to look at the intersection of business and compliance. Compliance officers and business managers need each other, whether they like it or not. The chief compliance officer has to enlist the business to own and take responsibility for compliance. If the business takes ownership of compliance, the organization has a chance to achieve an effective ethics and compliance program. But if the business avoids such responsibility, the company might as well forget about it. CCOs will be chasing business each and every day at the company with no success in sight. In the end, the chief compliance officer and the business have a responsibility to each other and keep company stakeholders. A CCO has to build a relationship, and so does the business. Business leaders know that compliance is more than just a compilation of trite compliance-focused expressions and memes. Every business knows that compliance is a must-have. They either have the will to make it happen, or they're just okie-doking the CCO about their commitment to compliance. CCOs who tentatively approach the business leaders to take ownership of compliance are starting off with their arms tied behind their back and on the wrong foot. A CCO that is empowered and authorized by the board and the CEO to execute has to act consistently with the mission. Tentative requests for cooperation assistance are by definition doomed to fail. If the business representative avoids the relationship or fails to come through, the compliance officer must communicate this fact to the business leader and, if necessary, to senior executives for accountability purposes. An organization is only able to operate when information is reported as needed to ensure efficient operation, achievement of goals, and accountability of individuals. Business managers who view compliance through the narrow prism of obstacles to business or cost centers do not understand compliance. It's no longer acceptable to avoid or ignore compliance. Those organizations and individuals that do so will eventually suffer consequences. Mike is not suggesting that government prosecutors and regulators always catch up to non-compliant companies. Instead, he's suggesting that a company with an attitude of non-compliance will achieve at best a short-term game with a long-term negative result. Business leaders have quickly learned that corporate culture, ethics and compliance, and internal controls are vital functions for the company's success. A company cannot avoid these issues given the demands of key stakeholders, federal, state, and local governments, shareholders, consumers, communities, and others. Business leaders know that a company's most valuable and tangible asset is its reputation, and any harm to a company's reputation in today's market can be devastating and take years, if not decades, to restore. Business leaders who ignore this new paradigm will suffer the inevitable rejection by company leadership, shareholders, and consumers. Tom? Okay, next up, we have an article by Aaron Nicodemus at Compliance Week, and it's entitled Preparing for China's New GDPR-like Data Protection Law. And every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of this. It's the Chinese Personal Information Protection Law, or the PIPL, and it sets strict requirement for obtaining consent from consumers before personal data is collected. It applies to personal data on Chinese citizens that is processed outside of China. Uh, It uh, quotes to uh, Paul McKenzie from Morrison and Forrester, who said that consent is king under the PIPL, and it's not consent really, but informed consent. An interesting difference from GDPR is that although data breaches must be 
reported to the appropriate government authority within 72 hours, only if the breach is likely to pose a risk to individual rights and freedoms. And Jay, really the uh, most critical thing about this new law is the timing of when it goes live, Three uh, now two and a half months. So you, if you're doing business in China and you have Chinese individuals' personal information on your uh, computer, you need to uh, get moving quickly. As I recall, the uh, CCPA had a run-up of 18 months. GDPR had a run-up of uh, over two years. So companies are going to have to jump pretty quickly uh, to get ready for this law. Uh, I would also say that uh, this law, uh, Dave Leeford and I recorded a pod this week, which we'll post tomorrow. Uh, from the editor's desk, uh, Dave's the editor-in-chief of compliance. We can talk extensively about this law. So if you really like Dave's thoughts on it, uh, check out that pod, uh, which we'll also post on Friday the same day as uh, this week in FCPA posts. Jay, uh, is COVID-19 the biggest challenge to compliance ever? Well, Calvin London thinks so, and he writes about this in Corporate Compliance Insights. The actions of a few affect the lives of many, COVID-19 and compliance. Complacency has no place in compliance. COVID-19 might be the most significant compliance challenge we've ever faced in modern times. And as Calvin London writes, the handling of the pandemic, certainly where he lives in Victoria, Australia, continues to provide insights into the practice of compliance. For a bit of background, Victoria must hold the record for the most number of enforced lockdowns, six to date, with the most number of days in lockdown. The state had a continuous lockdown of 120 days last year, and currently the sixth lockdown has just been extended into the start of September. Calvin had a moment of clarity when it came to him one day that dealing with COVID is just like compliance. The quest for zero cases of COVID-19 seems akin to the pipe dream that there will be a world without corruption and bribery. Furthermore, lockdowns do not add to the long-term dream because in order to be successful, they rely on people being socially responsible and doing the right things, two things that compliance require. Managing those who are non-compliant. Unfortunately, and as any compliance professional will support, there will always be bribery, corruption, and wrongdoing, as long as there's a minority element who seek, who will not or cannot do the right thing. There are different shades of noncompliance, and the consequences for doing the wrong thing should be factored accordingly. The compliance world has already discovered that if you want to have a hope of stopping noncompliance, you have to make it personal and hold in individuals' accountability. If the process doesn't work, fix it. Like many parts of the world, masks in Victoria are mandatory at the moment, inside and out. This varies depending on the state of restrictions, as mixed messaging leads to noncompliance, whether intentional or not. Isn't this also reflective of most speak-up programs that fail from the start because there is neither protection nor reassurance from those who are prepared to speak up? Too much of a good thing. The quest for a world with no bribery and corruption, while commendable, is a long way off. So too is a desire for zero COVID-19. Regulators need to take stock of their plans for corrective and preventative actions because if they're too demanding on the majority and do not reinforce adequate correction at those whose fault, the program starts to suffer from compliance fatigue. 
People need some reward for being compliant, a better world, a better workplace, or a better work life. Being punished en masse for doing no wrong seems not, does not seem to be a good compliance adage. Similarly, asking people to follow something they have lost faith in has historically not worked. So as Calvin sat there staring out his window, he thought about the effects of COVID-19 on different people and the similarities of enforcing compliance. Different governments have taken different approaches, while different outcomes with different degrees of success. People have responded in different ways. The one thing that reads true for both is that the action of a few affect the lives of many. Isn't COVID-19 the biggest compliance challenge we've faced in recent years? And shouldn't we at least consider the basic principles of compliance in trying to solve it? Tom, what's up next? Uh, Jay, we continue our exploration of uh, GDPR and GDPR-like laws by looking at a signal from the United Kingdom about diverging with GDPR on new, to, new data transfers between countries. And this comes to us from our colleague Neil Hodge, also writing in Compliance Week, who said that uh, the UK is uh, planning to strike an independent path uh, for data adequacy decisions with key countries as part of the United States, or excuse me, including the US as part of its post Brexit economic strategy. And what this means is they're going to set up um, uh, basically portals between company uh, countries, they really are different words, uh, that the United Kingdom does business with. So the U.S., Australia, South Korea, Singapore, Dubai, Colombia, will all have these partnerships where there'll be a, an easier data transfer protocol. And for U.S. businesses, I think that's certainly welcome. The problem is that if the EU says that the U.K. is really downplaying what the countries that the United Kingdom contracts with have inadequate data protection, that this put, would put in jeopardy the adequacy decision that was granted in favor of the United Kingdom, which allows EU countries to uh, share data with the United Kingdom. So uh, England, or the United Kingdom rather, has to uh, stay within the, the parameters of GDPR, or risk losing that adequacy decision. Obviously, if uh, the UK can have an easier data transfer protocol with individual countries uh, because of adequacy decisions, um, it's going to make business easier. It may make uh, maybe a market differentiator for having your uh, company headquarter, or at least a European headquarter in the United Kingdom. Whether the UK can really move past what the EU requires of countries like the United States is, of course, an open question. But uh, certainly an interesting move by the United Kingdom. Uh, we'll see how far they can take this. And um, uh, more, uh, as, our, as our colleague Jonathan Armstrong would say, more to come. So, Jay, here's the question I've been wanting to pose to you. Can a compliance officer be a whistleblower under the SEC whistleblowing program and receive an award. What say you? I say yes, and there can be multiple compliance officers who could potentially receive an award from the SEC. With this story, we check in with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, and his ever-excellent radical compliance blog. 
three gutsy and persistent compliance professionals are all a bit richer after the Securities and Exchange Commission gave them a joint whistleblower award of more than a million dollars for helping the agency prosecute misconduct at their firm. As is usual with SEC whistleblower awards, We don't know much about the particulars, such as who the whistleblowers were, the business that employed them, or what misconduct triggered the SEC enforcement. As you know, all such details are routinely kept confidential in SEC whistleblower award announcements. What we do know is that the SEC awarded it on August 27th to three recipients who held compliance roles in the firm where they reported their concerns. Compliance officers and internal auditors are only eligible to win SEC whistleblower awards if at first they report the matter internally to senior management. If the company's management takes no action for 120 days, then the compliance officer is free to bring their concerns to the SEC and submit a whistleblower award claim under the Dodd-Frank Act. We don't see too many of these awards going to compliance officers. Last time it happened was for about $450,000 in early 2020. Here's what we know about the three recipients. Claimant one received the largest share of the million because he or she provided their most significant comprehensive information about the conduct to staff that proved vital to success of the enforcement action. He or she also provided extraordinary assistance through the investigation. Claimant two received a smaller but apparently still substantial share because this person was the first to report the matter to the SEC, and claimant's two information provided a framework for developing more information requests. Finally, claimant three seems to have received the smallest share because, quote, while helpful, unquote, claimant three's information was not as significant to the overall success. We don't know whether the three claimants worked as a team while providing info and assistance to the SEC or brought their concerns to the agencies without any coordination. Anyway, if their firm took no action to address whatever misconduct these compliance officers saw, shame on the management, and congratulations to these three compliance officers for doing the right thing. Reporting misconduct to a regulatory agency is definitely a difficult choice one that leads the reporter exposed to risk of retaliation and doesn't guarantee any financial reward at the end of the journey. Plenty of people go to the FCC, suffer professional consequences, and end up with no whistleblower award. So good for these three, whoever they are. Tom, back to you. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. So, Jay, we continue a visit uh, at the SEC with an article by our colleague Dylan Tokar at the Risk and Compliance Journal at the Wall Street Journal. And he wrote about a uh, SEC enforcement actions against three uh, broker-dealers for email break-ins because the SEC determined that the uh, emails uh, contained personal information of thousands of customers. And apparently the... uh, Dealer brokers at issue had a 
compliance program and policies and procedures in place to protect consumer information and respond to cybersecurity risks. But they were it was a paper program, and they weren't implemented or were only partially implemented, literally in the face of known attacks. And I guess the thing that uh, two things I saw significant about this, Jay. Uh, the first one is a little bit of uh, the obvious. You can't have a check-the-box program, and when the regulators come knocking, particularly after you've had a compliance failure, expect to get much uh, credence. But the second thing is that uh, when you know Jonathan Armstrong and I have life with GDPR, you and I have talked about a variety of data uh, protection cases on this week in FCPA, and this is really the first one I've seen that focused on emails. And it makes you think about what personal or customer information is contained in emails. It's not something that I think is talked about a lot or even enough, but it's certainly uh, important for the purposes of uh, this story that it led to a significant SEC fine for three broker-dealer co- companies, institutions. So um, hacking email uh, can lead to uh, data, data protection breach, but more importantly, a data privacy uh, violation as well. So uh, think of that, that before you send out your next stupid email. So Tom, do you know what the differences or similarities are between ISO 37002 and the EU whistleblower standard? You know, I do, but I'm going to let you tell us about that. Okay. Well, I'm going to take uh, my knowledge that I gleaned from Kelly Maxwell, who's writing in the Conversant by One Trust blog. And we're going to look at the ISO 37002 and the EU whistleblower standards. By the end of 2021, specifically December 17th of this year, the EU countries and companies and organizations with more than 250 workers must comply with the EU whistleblower protection directive. This means for the first time, many EU-based companies will need to actualize and enforce a whistleblower program. The deadline for the EU Whistleblower Protection Directive is set, but organizations who want to prepare for the respective deadlines can adopt ISO 37002 before the deadline. Think of this as an expandable roadmap to compliance and a way to set your organization up for success before the deadline and beyond. So what is ISO 37002? The International Organization of Standardization, ISO, recently published ISO 37002 for whistleblowing management systems as a standard for voluntary guidance. This law provides, or this standard provides guidelines for establishing, implementing, and maintaining an effective whistleblower management systems. And it uses the following four steps. First, receive reports of wrongdoing, then assess the reports, address the reports, and finally conclude with whistleblowing cases. So what does adopting ISO 37002 guidance look like? Adoption of the guidance will support the following outcomes, encourage and facilitate reporting of wrongdoing, support and protect whistleblowers and other interested parties, ensure reports of wrongdoing are dealt with in a timely manner, improve organizational culture and governance, and reduce the risks for wrongdoing. Potential benefits for the organization includes allowing the organization to identify and address wrongdoing at an early opportunity, help prevent or minimize loss of assets, ensure compliance in organizational policies, 
attract and retain personnel committed to organizations' value and culture, and demonstrate sound ethical governance practices. So how does ISO 37002 relate to the whistleblower directive? How can the ISO guidelines help companies build a strong foundation? The two sets of guidelines are complementary, and when you put them side by side, they're designed to work together, preventing wasted times, resources on the path to compliance. Here are the main intended outcomes. ISO encourages, facilitates reporting of wrongdoing, and the whistleblower directive creates internal, external channels for safe reporting. ISO supports and protects whistleblowers and other interesting parties. The Whistleblower Protect Directive makes sure workers know where and how to report. ISO ensures reports of wrongdoing are dealt with in a timely manner. Whistleblower provides timely feedback and acknowledges receipt of reports. ISO improves organizational culture and governance. Whistleblower protects confidentiality of both whistleblowers and parties' names and reports. And finally, ISO reduces the risks of wrongdoing, and whistleblower protects workers from retaliation. Finally, we should note that both ISO 3702 and the EU Directive identify in detail reporting guidance and protecting individuals involved in reporting. Both aim to protect whistleblowers and the confidentiality of subsequent reports, provide guidelines for managing, evaluating, maintaining, and implementing effective systems for whistleblowing. Tom, why don't you tell us now about the trial of the century in Mozambique? Well, Jay, we, uh, we started this uh, tale last week, and uh, this is uh, post number two. By uh, It's posted by Rick Messick, but it comes from um, a reporter, Marcelo Mossi, editor and publisher of the independent online outlet Carta de Mozambique. And he is watching this trial. It's around a $2.1 billion of debt, a round of debt funding that the Mozambique uh, uh Junta uh, got, uh, uh, but they stole that money from the country. So there's now a big trial around this. And of course, with Mozambique, all things are problematic. But this really uh, story says that um, it compares it with a a trial 20 years ago where the name of the suspected uh, killer, in that case was a murder case, was the son of the president of Mozambique, and it was he whose name will never be mentioned. Now, I don't know if they're channeling their inner Harry Potter or not, but the name is Baltimore, and here the name is Felipe Nisuzi. Um, So this uh, post continues to report on the trial, and this is really a significant trial that uh, I don't think the West is really paying enough attention to, Jay, just the fact that uh, the country can have a trial against the current and former president for corruptions, uh, for current and former presidents for corruption is significant in and of itself. Last week we reported on a, an extradition uh, request by Mozambique uh, uh, and the United States for an individual in South Africa. So we're going to keep watching this. I hope that justice prevails and there's some justice for the citizens of Mozambique. But once again, he whose name must never be mentioned is Voldemort, and mention his name and say it, say it loud and say it proud. Jay, what's our last story of uh, this episode? Uh, the last story comes to us from Nick and Giovanni Gallo's Fine Compliance Line blog, 
and we're going to take a look at how to create a diversity training program that fosters acceptance and collaboration. Many organizations are ramping up their efforts to improve workplace diversity, implementing equitable hiring and promotion practices to ensure that everyone has an opportunity to succeed. It's clear that diversity training is important for today's workplace, but why does it matter and how can you guarantee that your diversity training program achieves its goals? Here's an overview that you may want to follow. Number, first off, the importance of diversity training. If an organization wants to keep their employees and their customers happy, they need to make a concerted effort to promote diversity and equality. Diversity training is a critical step in that process. So how do you develop a successful diversity training program? First off, create a plan. Your program should be tailor-made for your organization and built around the standards, policies, and possible scenarios your workers are likely to face in the office. You can use these specifics to construct a training program that directly addresses issues your workers face and in ways that can support their colleagues every day. Mix up your methods. One of the most challenging parts of creating good training programs on any topic is finding a way to make the training engaging for everyone. When you design your diversity training program, make sure you use a variety of teaching methods to communicate your points, combine lectures, videos, written articles, and anything you else anything else that you think will effectively drive home the point. Hiring an expert. Diversity can be a very tricky subject to discuss, especially if your HR department or team leaders aren't the most diverse group of workers. There are several guest speakers or compliance organizations who would be happy to help you create your diversity training program. Working with experts will take your program to the next level and guarantee that this complicated topic becomes a digestible way for all your workers. Use tests and surveys. Give your employees tests and quizzes throughout the training to make sure everyone is absorbing, absorbing and maintaining the information you've provided. When the training's over, subject yourself to an assessment, assessment and conduct a survey asking employees how you can improve. And finally, keep the training going. Diversity training doesn't end after one day in the conference room. Your company should make a concerted effort to improve acceptance and equality and equity throughout the organization. This means updating training to address different issues, giving employees refresher courses occasionally, and checking in with employees of color to ensure their needs are met. If you commit to creating a diverse workplace culture, you'll find that your workers will be happier, more innovative, and more productive, and that means a better working experience for everyone. Tom, what do we have this week for podcasts and events? Jay, we had a very memorable week of podcasts. On Tuesday, I interviewed uh, Ethisphere's Erica Salmonburn and Doug Allen about the opening of the submission process for the world's most ethical awards for 2022. Obviously, they talked about the history of, or perhaps not obviously, but Erica talked about the history of the awards, the information that Ethisphere has been able to glean and garner from that process and then we talked about the application process, and that was the part that I thought was the most significant because companies who go through that application part process, it's a rigorous process, and it's a process which uh, requires them to not only take a deep dive into their compliance program, but see where they may have gaps <clears throat> and uh, certainly gaps in documentation. So, you know, I was all over that. Um we ended our four-part podcast series with Courtney Nordrum 
on this month's The Compliance Live, Courtney moves into the CCO chair and she at Deluxe Corporation, as we say in Texas. She calls it Deluxe. I don't know why she mispronounces it. But um, we uh, talked about uh, what it was like sitting in the chair and what she sees compliance down the road. Um, the uh, breaking news is still featuring the compliance handbook, so you can uh, check that breaking news feature out on YouTube, and you can uh, purchase the Compliance Handbook Second Edition as well. I had a, a fabulous webinar uh, with uh, my our Brazilian colleagues, Jay, where I was able to uh, roll out the book launch for the Compliance Handbook Second Edition for uh, Brazil, and um, that was a lot of fun yesterday. Uh, K2, uh, you want to tell us about uh, K2 Integrity's upcoming event? Sure. On uh, September 15th, K2 Integrity will be holding a roundtable discussion as we reflect on the 20th anniversary of September 11th and consider its impact on countering terrorist financing and illicit financing and the continuing risk to national security. The roundtable will include members of the team that spearheaded the post-9-11 counter-illicit finance regime, Juan Zarate, Chip Ponce, Danny McClin, and it will be moderated by Dr. Michelle Malvesti. Information and registration links, of course, are followed in the show notes. And Tom, you've been working on something very special in remembrance of 9-11. What do you have for us next week? Jay, uh, I think as most listeners know, this year is the 20th anniversary of uh, 9-11, when America was attacked by a non-state actor. And uh, I think this year is even more poignant because of the fall of Afghanistan and the pictures we saw of the evacuation from Kabul. And um, I've been thinking a lot about the last 20 years of uh, what 9-11 meant. It's certainly the seminal event in America in my life, uh, even more than the assassination of, of JFK. I can't think of a more seminal event uh, going back to Pearl Harbor. That was a more seminal event, but this one was pretty seminal. And so uh, I w- really wanted to do a, a very personal podcast series. So I've gotten uh, six friends of ours to talk about where they were on 9-11 uh, what changes 9-11 wrought in their profession, and with one exception, they're they're all compliance and compliance related. And uh, what what they are thinking about now as they reflect back on 20 years of continuous warfare, basically, and what 9-11 meant. Uh, we have uh, Gabe Hidalgo and <clears throat> Juan Zarate from K2 Integrity, Professor Alexander Dill from UCLA. Scott Moritz, uh, now at FDI. Scott was an FBI agent in Manhattan on 9-11. Your colleague, Eric Feldman, who uh, was an assistant inspector general in the CI and actually in the director's office for a meeting uh, at 7.30 a.m. on 9-11. And he has some very poignant uh, thoughts about that, as well as his uh, reflections. And then, Jay, for our final episode, I went outside the compliance space uh, to talk to John Lee Dumas. And I recognize that name is not as well known in the compliance realm, but John Dumas is literally one of America's top podcasters. He has an entrepreneur on fire. Well, on September 11th, John Lee Dumas was a college senior, and he was a college senior in ROTC. And he knew when he saw that second plane hit the towers 
he was going to war. And he did go to war. He went to war in Iraq, not Afghanistan. And so he talks about that. He talks about him 21 years old and leading men into battle and losing men and, and how that impacted him and how it changed his life, uh, the, how he learned about leadership and how he took those skills into the civilian life. And, and he really has, uh, he's our last episode, and it's uh, his reflections really summed up, I think, uh, how most of us feel about America today. And so I would invite you to, uh, I've got a, a trailer up of those remarks. If you want to take a look at that, uh, uh, check out my YouTube channel. So that's a really personal series. I spent a lot of time on it. I can't tell you it's the most important podcast series I've done, but it really is the most personal. I hope everyone will check it out. Also, um, the Everything Compliance Gang is going to take up those same questions uh, in our Everything Compliance, which will post Thursday, uh, September 9th. So uh, check out what uh, the lads on Everything Compliance are thinking about uh, today as, as we all look back. It's For me, Jay, it's going to be a very poignant week. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot. Uh, Lots of American lives were lost, civilian lives, obviously, in the attack on (coughs) New York and Washington, military lives. It uh, unleashed forces in the world we had not seen before that we're still grappling with today. And in many ways, America today is the fallout from from that event and Bush's decision to go to war against Iraq. So... um, I hope you'll check out uh, both my six-part podcast series, Looking Back on 9-11. It's going to be posted on the uh, Innovation Compliance. It is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. And uh, Vin DeCiani uh, opens each podcast with, I thought, some incredibly poignant remarks about his experiences, experience on 9-11. Uh, living in Boston and what that was like where two of the planes took off from. So uh, check out uh, Vin's intro, check out Eric's podcast. Um, They're all great. Uh, Everyone has a very personal story. I heard uh, some really poignant tales about being in Manhattan on 9-11, not knowing where your spouse was, not knowing if your spouse was alive. Scott Moritz talked about walking back to Penn Station to catch a train home and looking down Fifth Avenue and there was a big hole where the towers were. Um, Alexander Dill said that his office building was used as a morgue um, in the wake of 9-11. So uh, Juan Zarate was uh, in the Treasury Department when the plane hit the Pentagon. Eric Feldman saw smoke coming from the Pentagon. so it's, it's very, very uh, poignant, very, very personal to each guest. I really can't thank them enough. So uh, check out the series um, and uh, think, about, think about next week. Think about 9-11. What does it mean to you? And think about all the Americans who lost their lives and, and I guess, people worldwide. So, Jay, with that uh, somewhat melancholic uh, series of remarks, you want to uh, – Take us home with your normal upbeat. Uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with Tom, as you know, he's the voice of compliance. He can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, I'm Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. 
I can be reached at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom Fox, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 267 for the week ending September 3rd, 2021, the Labor Day edition. Uh, We hope you'll join us next week to listen to some of these important podcasts. And as always, we'd like to thank you for joining us and this week in FCPA. And we'll see you next week when we talk about all the week and everything that happens in FCPA. Have a great Labor Day weekend, and we'll be in touch soon. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you will join me for my upcoming Looking Back at 9-11 series, which will premiere on Monday, September 6th, and run for the entire week, including the day of 9-11. Also, I hope you will check out my latest podcast, the ESG Report, available on the Compliance Podcast Network or wherever you find podcasts. As always, if you have any questions on today's episode, you can email Jay or myself. We have our email addresses in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a very happy and safe Labor Day, and we look forward to visiting with you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.